Matthew 10, beginning at verse 34. This is the word of God. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Then Micah chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Micah chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts each, each other with a net. Their hands are in what is evil, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them, a thorn hedge. The day of your watchmen, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord, because I have sinned against him, until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his justice. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes look down upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall far be extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants, for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might, 
They shall lay their hands in their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is God's word, and we thank him for it. One of my favorite songs is Blinded by Your Grace, part two by Stormzy. Anyone know it? Two people know it. Was it not number one? Okay, three. Presume Jim knows it. No? Okay. Well, it's on a secular... Oh, PowerPoint. Yeah, there he is. It's on a secular album uh, by a guy who headlined Glastonbury the week before. Some select lyrics are, Lord, I've been broken. Although I'm not worthy, you fix me. Now I'm blinded by your grace. You came and saved me. I said a prayer this morning. I prayed I would find a way. I was so afraid till you came and saved me. I'm my mother's child, but I'm God's son. You saved this kid, and I'm not your first. It's not by blood, and it's not by birth. But, oh my God, what a God I serve. Many of us do criticize and shun secular music because it's off the world. Or maybe, perhaps, Stormy's language is frequently appalling. I personally don't know where he stands, and I don't think that we would let our children listen to his, to his album. However, however, I love that while so many Christians and Christian leaders are sitting in rooms talking about outreach strategies, programs, putting together task groups and committees to evaluate potential sites for potential church plants that strangle evangelism with red tape. I love that in the UK and Ireland, there are now millions of people, mostly young people, maybe who have never been inside a church building, who have never maybe read a Bible, but yet, through a 25-year-old rapper from a working-class estate in England, now know that there is such a person as God, that there is confession for our unworthiness, for our brokenness, that there is such a thing as grace, there is such a thing as salvation, and there is even such a thing as prayer, and that God does indeed hear and answer prayer. That's one of the songs that I would call as a soundtrack to my faith. There's others I've mentioned before, like Why Me Lord by Chris Christopherson. I presume more folk know that. Or When the Man Comes Around by Johnny Cash. Incredibly powerful songs. But this morning, we don't find ourselves coming to listen to Stormzy or Chris Christopherson or Johnny Cash. Instead, we come this morning to listen to another song 
Micah 7. If you want to turn in your Bibles, you will find it helpful. Unlike what's gone before in Micah, Micah, which is more story than poetry, more narrative than song, in Hebrew, chapter 7 is actually a song in itself. Like the Psalms, it's another one of those biblical songs that forms the background to the soundtrack of our faith. It's a song that brings to conclusion all what's gone before in Micah. Which is great news, because in Micah 7, the gospel is crystal clear and vivid. It's a song of praise to the only one who is just, the only one who is good, the only one who is merciful. The song is split into four parts. Uh, part one, surrounded by sin. Part two, our advocate to Christ. Part three, our final destinations. And part four, the eternal character of God. And if you're quick, you will realize that spells out safe. And that took much more time than it should have. Anyway, in part one, in verses one to seven, we find Micah is just absolutely, he's torn up. He's distressed, he's despondent, he's depressed, he's looking out at the society that's around him, and he's simply just worn out. He is surrounded by sin. In verse 1 he says, woe is me. He's looking around for some fellowship, someone to help him, but he finds nobody. He's not asking for much, it's like he's starving. And a grape or a fig, that would kind of take the edge off his hunger, off his spiritual hunger. But there's nothing. Does he have anyone else to have fellowship with? No, none at all. In verse 2, we find out that anyone who had any interest at all in God is dead. There's not even a soul that you could trust. The living are wandering around treating themselves and each other like animals. Animals instead of image bearers of God. They're all out for blood and hunting each other with nets. Verse 3, they're even experts at doing evil. Like the terrorist who uses his skills to make a bomb that will inflict the most damage. Or the drug dealer who runs his business with ruthless meticulously. These guys are masters of evil. They've learned evil, they've studied evil, they've taught evil, they practice evil, they walk in evil. This is what Mike is in. And these are God's people he's talking about. Verse 4, even the best of them, the absolute best of them, they're still like weeds and brambles, like overrunning Eden after the curse. He's looking for the summer fruit, the figs, the grapes. Instead, what does he have? Weeds and thorns. But Micah says that this is the day of the watchmen. They're the prophets. That day is coming, the day of judgment and type is here. The day that he's been yelling about for the last six chapters, and that indeed all the prophets were yelling about, has finally arrived. Exile is soon to come. God's people will be led out of the promised land by God's enemies, the Assyrians. 
But why do you think, according to this verse, that their confusion is at hand? These folks who are doing evil, are, are, they're confused when this is happening. Well, imagine if you had spent your entire lives listening to false prophets who told you that everything's okay, everything will be fine, everything will be awesome. Don't listen to those guys that preach judgment. Don't listen to Micah. Everything's okay. Don't worry about it. And then judgment comes. That is why God's people here are confused. Because they've listened to the garbage of the false prophets, those who declared peace where there was no peace. They don't need someone to declare more peace. They need somebody to come in and speak the truth to them. If you read the rest of the book, you will know that they thought they were at peace because they had money and they had uh, prosperity. They thought, humanly speaking, everything was going okay. We must have the blessing of God. We're rich. But it really wasn't. Verses 5 and 6 reveal just how bad the situation was. Imagine you couldn't trust your best friend, your lover, your son, your daughter, your in-laws, even the members of your own house. You couldn't trust any of these people to tell you the truth. You just could not trust any of them. When Jesus says in Matthew 10, that reading that we read, that he didn't come to bring peace but a sword, Jesus means that he's not coming like the false prophets who declare peace where there is no peace. He's coming with the sword of his word, and his word is truth. When Jesus says that he set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household, Jesus is actually telling us what it would look like for those sons, those daughters, those daughters-in-law, those in families who listen to him and say that it's not their physical descent or their culture or their DNA that would save them. It's not what makes them the same as their ethnic family that will save them. To confess that ethnicity, the ethnicity that they shared with Abraham would save them, that's not going to save them. They need to have faith in the Messiah. If you, if you were a Jew and you were told for hundreds of years that, well, you'll be okay because, well, you know, your, your father's 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 father, that's Abraham. Imagine your son drops that at the table. Dad, you're wrong. We have to believe in the Messiah. Suddenly, that's a problem for the family. Imagine an orange, an orange man. Imagine sitting down with your dad, who's an orange man, and saying, Dad, you're not actually Protestant, because you really think you're kind of saved by faith and works. Or you think you're saved because you're Protestant. Or you think you're saved because you're an orange man. You're not, Dad. You're not. You need to know the Messiah. Those who confess Christ alone will face persecution from even, even those who claim to be from the household of God. 
own fathers, their own mothers, their own mothers-in-law, even their own household. But we know that it's not our ethnicity that saves us. We know that it's not by blood, it's not by birth. In John's words, it's not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus' take on it is that believers will be persecuted by those closest to them because they have refused to listen to false prophets. Instead, they will be persecuted because they have decided to listen to Christ. When Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me, he says it's the same thing. Trusting ethnicity or traditions or culture instead of Christ. Whoever loves their ethnicity or their flesh or their traditions or anything else more than Christ, well, they're not worthy of Christ because they are depending on something that simply will not save them. No one is saved because they're Protestant. Is there a cross? Yes. Take up our cross and follow him. That means looking to the Good Shepherd. And we can see that's the same response that Micah makes in verse 7. The first glimmer of hope that's in this song. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Micah knew exactly what the score was. He knew what was up. He knew how far trusting in the flesh or the, the DNA in ethnicity or culture would get you. No fruit, just briars. That's the first part of the Song of Hope, with the, that theme of hope coming through at the end. The work of faith that means looking to the Messiah, looking to the Lord, waiting for the Lord, and speaking to the Lord. Part 2, verses 8 to 13, build on that theme. In verse 8, Micah's hope is in who? Micah's hope's in the shepherd. That hope comes to center stage. If he falls, he'll rise. If he sits in darkness, he is the light of the world. His calamity isn't a reason for his enemies to rejoice, for those who hate the Lord to rejoice. And again, we know it's not because Micah is this amazing guy. He's not. Micah's a sinner. And he knows this because he himself listens to the word of the Lord instead of the false prophets with silver tongues tickling the ears of people who accumulate for themselves teachers that they want to hear. In verse 9, he confesses his sin and looks in faith to forgiveness. So what has Micah done? Says verse 9. I have sinned. What does he trust the Lord to do? Plead his cause, execute judgment for him, and bring him out of darkness and into light. Micah's faith is in the Messiah, whoever lives and pleads for him. The one whom 1 Peter 2 says, has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
And Michael will himself look upon this advocate, his advocate's vindication or righteousness or justice. Mike is not going to go and claim his own justice or righteousness. Instead, he's going to claim the Messiah's righteousness. And who is this advocate? Well, reread the, ver- re-read the start of verse 9. Micah says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he, the Lord, pleads my cause. The Messiah is the Lord. Christ is the Lord. In verse 10, when we hear about those who ask, where's the Lord your God, Micah? The Lord our God is in heaven. Christ is at the Father's right hand, interceding for all who trust in him. And he will come to judge the quick and the dead. Just look how quickly the psalm has changed. It started off with that lament, with sadness, with the woe is me. But now Micah, now Micah is staring down the enemies of the Lord because the Lord is dropping his judgment on unrepentant people who went after false idols, listened to false prophets, and made Micah's life pitiful. In verse 11, there's the boundary of the promised land. Again, that will be far extended extended beyond anything that we can think of. That's a picture of heaven on earth. It will be populated by those who are born from above, not born from below. Those without Christ, their dwelling will be desolate. No fruit, just briars, justice, no mercy, wrath, no love, because the wages of sin is death. That picture of desolation, of barrenness, that wilderness, because of the deeds that they have done, It's the fruit of their deeds. But where's Micah? Well, Micah's not trusting in that. Micah's not trusting in the fruit of his deeds. Micah is trusting in the Lord. Part 3, verses 14 to 17. Well, that compares the two final destinations. We find out who this Lord, this advocate, the righteous one really is. Verse 14. The Lord is the shepherd. The Lord is the one who gives all these blessings to his people, who will shepherd his people. There's the staff to comfort them. There's the flock. We, we are the flock of his inheritance. While the evildoers are sitting in the wilderness, the flock dwell alone, safely, away from danger, in a forest in the midst of a garden land. It's that kind of picture of the return to Eden. Prosperity, rest, lush greenery, water, just like he says, Bashan and Gilead, the two fertile regions to the east of the Jordan. Verse 15. Just like before, just like before, God's people will see amazing things because since our ancestors have come out of slavery and sin and death and desolation and darkness, we have been moved in, not of desolation, but to a kingdom of wonderful light. 
all those things like the Passover, the temple, the Exodus, all those things that were pointing towards what will come. They will be realized. But what happens to the unrepentant? Well, verse 16 says they will actually see it. They will see it. Like the rich man looking at Lazarus. They'll see this. And they will be utterly ashamed of their own might. Because all their own might, all their strength, all their effort bought them was barrenness and desolation, the fruit of their hands. When it says they'll lay their hands on their mouths and their ears will be deaf, that's an idiomatic phrase that means they will be so overcome with shock and awe that they won't be able to do anything except watch in horror. These folks, the unrepentant, they're not in the leafy plains of the New Eden. These folk, if you look at verse uh, 17, these are actually starting to look a lot like the serpent in Genesis 3. The serpent who's cursed to lick dust. They're not living the dream. These guys are living the curse forever. They'll come out trembling a world away from the arrogance that they showed earlier in the book. They're going to turn in dread to the Lord, completely unlike Messiah, uh, Micah, who repents and looks in faith to the Lord. These unrepentant people, they're going to turn in dread, and they'll even be in fear of his people, us, they are terrified because of the awesome majesty of the shepherd king who will break them apart with a staff. And that word translated staff, Shabbat, that refers to a king's scepter as well as a shepherd's crook, just as it does in Psalm 23. Folks, scriptures do teach judgment. As the guy said, sin is real and hell is hot. Scripture does actually teach heaven and hell. And they are not separated by ethnicity, borders, even denominational lines. That line is separated by faith alone in Christ alone. Born not of flesh, but of the Spirit. If our faith is in that Messiah, Christ Jesus, then we will we will go to that new Eden, to that garden of delights. But if we don't listen to what Christ says, even though it's unpleasant, if we believe what the false prophets teach and we reject Christ, then we, sadly, tragically, are dust-licking snakes will spend eternity cursed and in dread and horror instead of the worship of Christ. Finally, we move into part four, final few verses of the book, verses 18 to 20. Look at what Micah wants us to know about the eternal character of God. Well, first, God does not change. Verse 18, he's unique. 
He, uh, who's a God like you? No one. There's no God like our God. Our God is the one true living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He exists, unlike Allah or Vishnu, or the God of Mormonism, or the Jesus of the Jehovah Witnesses. They're entirely different gods. He doesn't retain his anger forever, our God. Not because he's forgetful, but because on the cross, on the cross, this Messiah will take away both our guilt and God's wrath. That's what First John calls propitiation. Our guilt and God's wrath, gone. When we look on the cross of Christ, we look upon the justice of vindication, the righteousness of God, who indeed is very angry with sin and will punish the unrepentant. They're still the objects of God's wrath. But for those who come by faith alone, by faith alone, while we know our shepherd delights in steadfast love, that has said that covenant love covenant love that ensures, guarantees our blessings, because this Messiah became a curse for us on the tree. Look at the hope in verse 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will again tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. From Micah's perspective, that was written 750 years before Christ was born. We know full well that he did indeed have compassion on us, that he did indeed tread our iniquities underfoot and cast our sins into the depths of the sea. On the cross, because he delights in his steadfast love, his covenant love, so much so that he knew that none of us, certainly not me, could make it on our own. He knew that left to our own devices, we would be cursed, dust lickers, because we are not good. Scripture says there is none, no, not one, who is good. So our shepherd took the curse on himself folks, if your faith is in Christ, if you get it, maybe not perfectly, but if you understand and believe that he has died for your sin instead of you, all your sins are cast away. You know, God doesn't have an attic somewhere where he's keeping the evidence against you, going, oh, I'm sick of that broken fella, here, get the file. Your trial is now over. You were found guilty, and you were punished. Well, actually, actually, it was Christ that was tried, condemned, and executed in your place. But in God's, in God's eyes, it's the same as if it was you. That's the imputation that we're trying to memorize. And all that means is that all that's Christ's is ours, but all our sins. Christ has thrown that into the depths of the sea. If you're looking for your guilty papers, don't. They're at the bottom of the sea somewhere. And the great news is that you have an outstanding lawyer 
advocate who is pleading for you. We have an amazing Savior. But please, let me ask you, do you think, honestly, that it would have been wise for the dust lickers to repent while they had that opportunity? Because despite what we want to believe, Scripture is so, so clear. Look at verse 18. It's the remnant that is saved. That means some are saved. That means some are not. Not everybody will go to heaven. There are people in hell. There are people sitting here right now who will go to hell unless you are united to Christ by faith. There are people here who are trusting in anything else except Christ. That is not what God demands. That is not what God requires. But that's what that's the reality of what God has said in his word, even though it's unpleasant to listen to. There's no point declaring peace where there's no peace. And the folk, the folk that Micah talks about here, they heard this from the very lips of Micah, from God. But they still turned to false prophets who declared peace where there was no peace. Folks, this morning I am not declaring peace where there is no peace. If your faith is in Christ alone, and you're not counting on being Protestant, orange, being a nice person, being baptized, being a communicant, or because some lump of a minister told you that, well, everyone's saved, you're wrong. You believe nonsense. Scripture says, not me, Scripture says that when you die, you will go to hell. And you will be cursing that minister who declared peace where there was no peace, who told you everything was okay, who did not want to mention that word repent. Or maybe, maybe you'll be cursing yourself because on a Sunday morning, on the 7th of July, here, a minister did tell you to repent even though it wasn't pleasant to say or pleasant to hear. Folks, hell is not a pleasant thing to preach. That's why you do not hear a lot of sermons about hell. But whether if it's pleasant or unpleasant, listen to the voice of the Lord. And don't say, well, I guess I, guess I wasn't elect. Election is God's business. That's Romans 9. Your business is to turn to Christ in faith and repent. Folks, it really is all of grace. All of it. There's nothing, absolutely nothing, that we can do to save ourselves. If there was, Christ would not have died on the cross. We'll close in a moment, but just look at verse 20. We, on this side of the cross, know full well who the children of Abraham are. Those who have faith. That's what all of Romans 4 is about. Abraham is the father of those who believe. If your faith's in Christ alone, like Abraham and Jacob, and go off and read the cast of Hebrews 11, 
God will show his faithfulness and steadfast love as he has already sworn to do so from days of old. Not by flesh, not by blood. God is faithful. God is abounding in steadfast love. God is the faithful one. God alone is good. But folks, God is also faithful to his justice. God will not let the guilty go free. And if your faith, if your faith's not in Christ, bad news, folks, you don't have any righteousness of your own that will save you. That means that you're guilty. You're guilty. And his word says that he will in no way let the guilty go free. What is your hope? Honestly. Because just being nominally Protestant will not cut it with God. About two weeks ago, when we got home from evening worship, got a text from my brother. One of his 30-year-old friends had committed suicide. The last time that I saw him was sitting down there at my mother's funeral. I am so thankful that he heard Scott preach the gospel that day and not tickling ears, even though it's unpleasant to hear. Folks, this is life and death we're dealing with. Not fun. But this morning, we do thank God for the song of hope in Micah. And even more, we thank God for the Savior that Micah reveals. And we pray that we would indeed be blinded by his grace.